You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. You remember last week we had left off with uh, Joseph revealing his identity to his brothers, um, and we had really focused in on the idea last week that um, a believer has to embrace the reality that it's God's will rather than human will that directs his circumstances. Um, and when we really believe that it's God's will and not human will that's directing our circumstances, in the cases where forgiveness needs to happen, it allows us to forgive liberally because we remove the blame on somebody else being the director of our circumstances, and instead we seek to find the good in the midst of the evil that maybe was seeking to accomplish its purposes. Um, so that's what was able to like lead Joseph to forgive as liberally as he does. Joseph can forgive his brothers because ultimately he sees God directing his circumstances rather than his brothers. So when he gets out of jail, he doesn't blame his brothers for his predicament. He doesn't blame his brothers for lost years. He doesn't really emphasize what could have been. Instead, he sees God at work. He sees God working and moving and accomplishing good. So when he's confronted with his brothers once again, he's trying to help them see it from his perspective. Um, And we talked about that last week that um, Joseph test his brothers because he wants to see if they're going to abandon Benjamin like they abandoned him. Um, Instead, he finds that his brothers have a completely changed character, right? Like his brothers are grieved and tearing their clothes over the prospects of Benjamin uh, being put to death for stealing from uh, uh, Joseph's cup. They're grieved over it. And in fact, Judah steps up and is the first demonstrator of substitution in scripture, right? Like he says, me instead of Benjamin, like take me, put me to death, make me your servant, let Benjamin go. Um, And he prefigures Christ coming as the ultimate substitute. Um, But then Joseph wants his brothers to see things from his perspective, right? He says, look, God God was accomplishing good. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And we wrapped up everything last week from an application standpoint, talking about the fact that God is the first cause of all events in our life. And God controls the wicked in our life so that his good purposes are done and not evil. And we, we specifically looked at Calvary last week, right? That God preordained Calvary to happen, that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. And yet the evil people that accomplished that evil crucifixion weren't able to carry out their purposes. And so while evil was done and they're held accountable for their evil and Stephen and Peter and others that preach sermons and acts, they call out that sin, right? They, they identify the culprits of that sin. And so they're held accountable. So it's not excused. It's not that the end justifies the means and so the evil's just you know wiped away. No, like they're held accountable for the evil, but it's God who accomplishes good purposes rather than the evil purposes that were intended by those people. And so God controls all the events in our life. He's the first cause of all events in our life. When we see things from that perspective, it allows us to forgive liberally as Joseph does. All right, and so that brings us to our sermon today, the gift of Egypt. And I really want us to see the move, because this is Israel moving from the promised land to Egypt. I really want us to see God gifting the nation of Egypt to Israel for a time that God is at work in this, in this move, God is at work in this relocation, it's for good purposes, and God is completely um, showing favor to his people through Egypt. And so I want us to see this move as really a gift of God, um, his transition from the promised land to Egypt for a time in preparation for them going back to rightfully claim the land that he is giving to them. Our summary sentence for today 
When we believe that God is committed to his people and we trust that his presence is always with us, we can approach big life changes with confidence that good will be the outcome. When we believe that God is committed to his people and we trust that his presence is always with us, we can approach big life changes with confidence that good will be the outcome. Actually, there's two elements there. Believing that God is committed to his people, that God's favor rests on his people, and also his presence goes with us. When we believe those two things and we really wrap our minds around that reality, we can approach big life changes with confidence that good is going to be the outcome. It may be life changes that we're excited about. It may be life changes that we're not excited about. Either way, we can expect good to come from those big life changes. For our kids, because God is always for us and always with us, we can trust that any big changes in life will turn out good. Because God is always for us and always with us, we can trust that any big changes in life will turn out good. God is committed to his people. He's always with us. When big life changes happen, good changes or bad changes from our perspective, we can approach both with confidence that good will be accomplished in the midst of those changes. As you're writing that down, some introductory notes, I think it's important that we see chapter 45, 46, and 47 in the context of Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, so jumping way back uh, in our series, back in the time of Abraham, Back in Genesis chapter 15, God is giving promises and expectations to Abraham. And in 15, chapter 15, verse 13, And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." God's plan that was given years before to Abraham is playing itself out now as Jacob is going to move his family to Egypt. This plan was put in place before anybody had done anything right or wrong, okay? So we don't want to attribute any movement from Jacob and his family to Egypt as punishment for what the brothers have done. We we don't want to see it as uh, punishment for what they're going to do, and that's what leads to them being Uh, persecuted in Egypt. This is all part of God's plan before anybody that actually moves to Egypt is born, before they've ever done anything right or wrong. So God's not rewarding anybody here by sending them to Egypt, nor is he punishing anybody. This is God's plan for the nation of Israel. And it was put in place years before. It was told to Abraham years before. And so we have to kind of filter these events through Genesis chapter 15. And then I think it's important for us to see Egypt as a ark of preservation, much like we would see Noah's ark as a tool for preserving um, mankind. Egypt becomes an ark of preservation for God's people. Okay, so let's think of Noah and his family. God saves them from the flood by putting them into an ark, and it probably wasn't always the most desirable circumstances, right? Like they're safe inside the ark, but it would have been difficult to be inside that ark for as long as they were. But God preserves them in it. God saves them in it, protects them from the outside evil that was occurring, right? And so God carries them through that storm, carries them through the flood. They come out on the other side. They're alive. They carry on mankind. The remnant, that seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 that God is rescuing is maintained, okay? This is the, this is the same for Egypt. 
Think about the things that God preserves and protects them from. What's the obvious thing that he preserves and protects them from by moving them to Egypt? The ark protects them from the flood. Egypt protects them from the famine, okay? So this is going to essentially guarantee that starvation doesn't happen because they're going to get moved to Egypt and, and Pharaoh's already communicating in the text that we read this morning. They're going to get the best of the land. They're going to be well cared for, taken care of. They're going to be prioritized in Egypt, okay? But think about some of the other things that they're preserved from. Um, another thing that I wrote down, they're protected from the sin of the Amorites, right? Like that's what Genesis 15 is talking about. Genesis 15 says they're going to go there until the Amorite sin is complete. It says in verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All right, so let's not, let's not think that Egypt in any way is holy or righteous, but it's probably worth considering that their sin wasn't as bad as the Amorites because God's not, God's not setting them up for this great judgment, this great punishment that Israel is going to be a tool for. So the Amorite evil is wicked, and God says, you know what? They live in the promised land. We need to get you out of the promised land for a little while so that you're not influenced and consumed by these people. We've been talking for, for weeks and months now. God puts them in Egypt so that they don't get swallowed up by the Canaanite culture. The Canaanites wanted to intermarry with them and embrace them and basically vanquish them from being a people group. They're not very big, right? We read in the text this morning, there's about 70 of them. So it's not like a huge nation. They say, you know what? Come marry with us. Come trade with us. You guys have a lot of riches. You're small. Come be a part of our nation. Egypt is an ark of preservation because the Egyptians kind of thumb their nose at them, right? Like, we don't want to marry with you guys. We don't want you guys to really even live as us. We're going to put you out to pasture, basically. We're going to put you in a location where you stay separate. And we'll talk more about that. But Egypt is an ark of preservation for the nation of Israel. They're protected from the famine. They are protected from the sin of the Amorites. They're protected from being swallowed up by the Canaanite culture. Um, it, it's an ark. It, it's an ark in the same way that Noah was saved and his family was saved. Jacob's family is going to be saved as well through this vehicle. All right, um, let's look at some key points from the text. Um, again, it was a long passage that we read. Um, but I think there's some key things that we can draw out from what takes place here. Um, number one, respond to circumstances unless prompted otherwise. Respond to circumstances unless prompted otherwise. So let's talk about some of the movement that takes place because um, there's a, a, um, an appeal made by Pharaoh and by Joseph to the brothers and to Jacob through the brothers to move themselves to Egypt. For our kids, God wants us to follow the desires that he gives us. God wants us to follow the desires that he gives us. So Pharaoh finds out, says, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Again, that's God's favor upon his people that this is considered a good thing by Pharaoh and his people. Pharaoh says to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father, your households, come to me. I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. The brothers, the brothers are called to embrace reconciliation. Pharaoh and Joseph are extending this grace and mercy to the brothers, and they are invited to move and to come and to live. 
Joseph communicates exactly what Pharaoh has asked him to communicate. He begins to make provisions, like basically we're going we're gonna to make this easy on you guys. We're going to send everything that is needed to make this happen. And then in verse 24 of chapter 45, it says, Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. I think Joseph mentions this, and, and he's calling them to embrace reconciliation. One, come live with me. Let's have full reconciliation. But two, as they get ready to leave, he, he encourages them not to fight and quarrel on the way home. I think the temptation would have been to point fingers at each other as to who was responsible for what happened to Joseph, right? Like Reuben's already kind of come out and said, hey, I tried to save him. It was you guys that did this. Joseph, I think, knows this is a too-good-to-be-true scenario, and it's going to be easy for them as they leave to start finger-pointing and, and contemplating who was really at fault. They've probably got to go home and tell Dad that, hey, uh, we lied to you, and Joseph's alive, and we let you believe this lie for, for all these years, and, and it would have been easy to, to, to play an, a, a pointing game as to who was to blame. And I think Joseph really wants to, to emphasize here, don't regress and ruin a good thing here right? Like we've made up, like we've, we've forgiven and forgotten and we're moving forward. And I think he wants to make sure that that reconciliation is preserved. The brothers are called to embrace reconciliation, but number two, Jacob is called to embrace relocation. Jacob is called to embrace relocation. Now let's look at some of the factors that, that led uh, Jacob to moving to Egypt. It says, um, when they came to the land of Canaan, their father Jacob, they told him Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Doesn't believe him at first, but then it says, Israel said, is it enough? Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Jacob makes the decision to move his family. Um, and I think he, he does this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think he does it because the circumstances coupled with his own wisdom was leading him to move. The circumstances that he was, he was facing and his own wisdom, all that kind of coupled together would have pointed him to move to Egypt. Um, and, I, and I wrote some things down. First of all, I mean, everything, it, everything together, it looks like the right thing to do. I mean, as he steps back and he's trying to make this big life change for his family, and this is a big life change for his family, he starts to look around and says, okay, it, it looks like the right thing to do. And we want, I want to view this through our own decision-making process. Um, how do we make big life change decisions? How do we know when it's God's will for us to make big changes that affect our family? Job changes, house changes, relocations. Um, how do we know when it's God's will and God's movement um, for us and our family to, to step out and to do these things? First of all, for, for Jacob, everything makes it look like this is the right thing to do. Uh, the circumstances are pointing him in that direction. The famine's not getting any better, okay? And food is available in Egypt. It's the same reason that Abraham went to Egypt. It's the same reason that Isaac tried to go to Egypt because there's safety in Egypt from the famine. So the circumstances would say, and a wise individual who is assessing the circumstances would conclude the best thing for our family is to move to Egypt. His desires are also going to point him in that direction, right? So circumstances and desires his desire would be to move to Egypt. Why? To see his son, right? He says, I've got to see my son before I die. There's lost years that can't be, can't be gained back. But before I die, I want to fellowship with my, with my, um, with my son, 
okay? And so you've got circumstances pointing him in that direction. You've got his own desires pointing him in that direction. And then others who are urging him in that direction, right? So circumstances, desires, and then when he's talking to other people in his life, the brothers, they bring word from Joseph. They bring word from a, from a major world leader. Hey, you should move your family to Egypt. This is the right thing to do. This is the best thing to do. So all of these factors are, are basically making it pretty obvious we should probably move to Egypt. Like we should probably take the family to Egypt. So you've got all this stuff pointing there. But as I, I, I think I heard some of the groups talking about, it says, so Israel in chapter 46, verse 1, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he stops and pauses and offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Circumstances and wisdom can be a great guide for us, but it shouldn't negate that we should proceed with caution while praying for confirmation. I, th- I would like to think that Jacob was at least hesitant about moving to Egypt because his father, Isaac, had tried to do this and got stopped cold in his tracks, right? Remember, he was, he was moving there. He was moving that direction. He ended up uh, in the land of Abimelech, right? And in Genesis chapter 26, God stops him and says, don't go to Egypt. It says in Genesis 26, verse 1, now there was a famine in the land, Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, now, now what does that mean for us? Well, I, I wrote in my notes that it means that what's good for one saint, what's good for one child of God, doesn't necessarily mean it's good for all the children of God. And that's worth us factoring into our decision-making process, that what is good for one family may not be good for every family because it wasn't good for Isaac's family. It was great for Jacob's family because God shows up and says, do this, but it wasn't gonna be good for Isaac's family. And so while I don't think that we get visions and dreams and, and verbal confirmation from God today, I do think it should cause us to proceed with caution when circumstances would tell us to do something, when our desires would tell us to do something, um, when the wisdom of others would tell us to do something, that we step forward and we move confidently but cautiously, constantly praying that God would redirect our paths if needed. And I think that's probably the heart behind why he pauses here in Beersheba and begins to sacrifice. This was an important place for, for the patriarchs. Abraham had created treaties here with Abimelech back in Genesis 21. Genesis 22, it's this area where Isaac is offered as a sacrifice. This is also where Isaac receives his theophany, where God appears to him and gives him the promises, transferring them from Abraham now to him. This is an important place. And so I think he stops and pauses here and says, you know what? It seems like the right thing to do, but let's make sure that it's the right thing to do. Because what's good for us is not always good for somebody else. And what's good for somebody else isn't always good for us. And so Isaac could have argued circumstances and wisdom are telling me to go to Egypt, but God won't let me go. Jacob says, circumstances and wisdom are telling me to go to Egypt. Let's make sure we should go. Now, why would God move one and not the other? 
I had you guys discussing this this morning. Why would God have one move and not the other? Well, I think if you step back and look at the big picture, the reason that God is moving Jacob and his family to Egypt is to build a great nation there. And that's not what God was doing with Isaac at the time, right? Like he's not ready for that nation to explode yet. Isaac's going to have Ishmael and he's going to have Isaac, or Isaac's going to have, sorry, Jacob and Esau. It's, it's not going to explode during Isaac's lifetime. And so that's one of the big reasons why he doesn't move them yet. I think also there's not a favorable presence in Egypt when Isaac needs to go for the famine, right? You've got Joseph in the second position of authority in Egypt, and you have the Pharaoh inviting them to come and promising protection and provision. Isaac doesn't have that, right? So I think there's factors that are at play as to why it was good for one family and not the other, but the only way they were able to discern that was to move in a direction. Isaac's not rebuked for moving towards Egypt, but as he moves and proceeds with caution, God steps in and says, don't go that way. And I think we can approach things the same way in our own life. When we're, when we're wrestling with big life-changing decisions, we look at circumstances, we look at our desires, we look at the wisdom of others, and don't discount the wisdom of others. Um, I rarely make a big, big change or big decision in my life without seeking the wisdom and advice of others. I just, I just don't do it. And probably to my own detriment, I don't make a lot of small decisions without really doing my thorough homework and asking other people what I should do or not do. Um, Don't discount the wisdom of others. Um, All that coupled together, though, um, Jacob makes the decision to move his family to Egypt. The implication for us, when making decisions, we should allow prayer and worship to be our filter for circumstances, desires, and the wisdom of others. When making decisions, we should allow prayer and worship, and I would include within that worship, uh, scripture reading, right? Leaning on God's word, um, listening to the Holy Spirit's prompting in our life. We make prayer and worship our filter. We don't just rely on circumstances and desires and the wisdom of others. We make sure that we filter that through God's promptings and God's leading in our life. Jacob does that. Jacob gets the okay from God that this is the right direction to move. All right. Um, but let's, let's not jump too quickly from this interaction that he has here. All right. Um, number two, don't fear the unknown where God leads you. Don't fear the unknown where God leads you. So we respond to circumstances unless prompted otherwise. We should not fear the unknown where God is leading us. When we step out to make big life-changing decisions, we should proceed with joy and not with fear because we can trust that God's leading us and that God is going to work good in that situation. For our kids, God is always with us, especially when we are afraid. God is always with us, especially when we are afraid. All right, so in our notes here, number one, God reassures Jacob of his promises. Look how God works this situation to really provide confidence for Jacob as he moves his family. I mean, this is a big decision. This is the land that we're supposed to dwell in. This is the promised land, and we're vacating it. We're leaving it, all right? So there should be some fear attached to this because Isaac, remember, never left the promised land. And Jacob left and went to stay with Laban, and it was a miserable experience for for a big portion of that time. So this is a big change of uh, scenery for him and his family and his kids. Most of his, most of his grandkids, this is all they've known, right? His kids, this is what they know. 
And I think God really assures him in the way that he speaks to him and especially in the things that he says to him. It says, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. It's interesting. This is the same wordage that God uses uh, to Moses 400 plus years later. And this is the, the next time we see God show up and speak directly to somebody. Right? There's this big gap of time where he may have done it, but we don't have anything recorded. He says, I'm the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I'll bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Some of the things that take place in this interaction, first of all, there's self-revelation. God's always quick to communicate who he is. And I think by simply stating that he's the God of your father, it's a reminder to Jacob, I'm the God that's committed to your family, right? Like I've been committed to your family. I came to your granddad, Abraham. I gave him promises and I gave him direction and I stayed with him and I fulfilled promises. I was with your father, Isaac. I'm that God, right? I'm committed to your family. So that self-revelation that takes place is a reminder that he's committed to Jacob's people. There's the denouncement of fear here. God says, don't be afraid to do this. Don't be afraid to do this. Why? Because there's also a reiteration of promises. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. That first promise in Genesis chapter 12 that God gives to Abraham, God is telling Jacob, it's coming, it's coming. And he also reminds him of his presence, right? He says, I myself will go down with you. So God's reassuring Jacob of these promises. But secondly, God confirms that he's leading him to Egypt. Right? Not only are these promises still true, Jacob, these promises will be carried out in Egypt. So there's further confirmation that he should go to Egypt. God connects his plan directly to Egypt. It's very similar, the wordage used here is very similar to the other great moves of the patriarchs when he comes and communicates movement to uh, Abraham and Isaac. A big move, uh, this is a big move as no other children will see the promised land until the exodus happens. Think about that. There's generation after generation that grows up in Egypt that never sees the promised land. Once God came to Abraham, everybody in Abraham's family had at least experienced the promised land for a time. This is a move to where offspring of Abraham will never even see the promised land. They're gonna live and die and grow up in Egypt and never go back. So this is a giant move for God's people. God's saying, don't be afraid. I'm connecting our plan. I'm connecting my promises to this move. I think it's really important too that hopefully this was passed down to Jacob's descendants because when things become difficult, it's important to remember that it was the right move. Think about it. For 400 plus years, they're in bondage. 400 plus years, 430 years to be exact, they are in bondage to the point where they hate being in Egypt. And it would have been very easy to question, why did granddad Jacob move us here? Why did he do this? This was the wrong decision. This was the wrong move, right? And, and it would be tempting for us maybe too when we make a big life change, big life decision where we change locations, change jobs, and then you know all the wisdom and all the circumstances and, and all the prayer, everything pointed us to do it. And then things maybe get hard. And then we wanna bail and say, oh, this must not have been God's will. And, and Jacob, I think, has to pass down to his family, hey, when things get tough, don't doubt that this was the right move. We're gonna be in bondage for 400 plus years, 
But it was the right decision. It was the right move. It doesn't change the fact that we were supposed to go. Good is assured of coming from this move. A great nation will be built there, God says. God's going to be with him there. Let's don't forget that promise that God gave to Jacob, same Jacob he's talking to here, back in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, when um, he's also at, uh, when he's just left Beersheba, says, um, verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The God who makes that promise is the God who's making these promises again to Jacob. He says, I won't leave you until I keep my promises. So he says, I'm gonna move you to Egypt. I'm gonna make a great nation and I'm gonna bring you back. I'm gonna bring your people back and I'm going with you to do this. And it should be encouragement to us that God's presence remains with us and all these promises that God makes apply to us And God is continuing to fulfill these promises. He's continuing to keep these promises. He says, I'll bring you up out of Egypt again. He also assures Jacob that his death will be sweet. Right? It says in verse four, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I'll bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He says, this is going to be good. This move is the right decision. This move will be good. And I think even the bondage for 400 years is good for them. Why would that be good? Because I think it gives them a taste and a longing and a desire for what God really has for them, right? Like if if they just enjoyed the comfort of Goshen and the comfort of Pharaoh's stuff for 400 plus years, and then Moses shows up and says, hey, it's time to go. The Amorites, they're, they're really sinful. They're really sinful now. And now it's time for us to go kill them and take their land. I mean, if I've got estates and, and properties and stuff, and you're telling me to leave all this and to go kill people and fight wars so we can get some other land, it's like, we don't need to go. Like, why would we leave? Like, this is great. But Moses shows up and says, hey, you guys ready? And it's like, yeah, we've been ready for a while now. Right, that should be the same attitude that we have about Jesus coming back, right? Like we don't want to be so comfortable here that when Jesus shows up, it's like, ah, oh, like could you have not waited a little bit longer? Like I remember as a kid, like, like I had desires and plans for my life and thinking like, if Jesus could just hold off until like I get to go to college and I get to get married and do some things that I want to do, like what an awful perspective that we would be content with anything that this world has to offer in light of what's to come, right? And so I think the bondage is good for them because if, it's not, if they're not careful, they're gonna fall in love with Egypt and never wanna leave and never wanna go to the land that God has for them. So God's all about good in this situation. The implication for us, reminding ourselves of God's promises and reassuring ourselves of his presence will allow us to avoid fear and embrace joy as we approach the unknown in our lives. Reminding ourselves of God's promises and reassuring ourselves of his presence will allow us to avoid fear and embrace joy as we approach the unknown in our lives. So we've got Jacob, uh, his brother, or Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers come back. Um, They're prompted not to quarrel, not to fight, to really embrace reconciliation. They come home, they tell Jacob, hey, we should go. We need to go. 
So Jacob's filtering through the circumstances, his desires, the wisdom of others. Yeah, we should go to Egypt. But, but dad didn't get to go to Egypt, so let's pause and let's reflect and let's pray and make sure this is what we should do. And God confirms and says, absolutely, and don't be afraid and, and know that this isn't the end for you, that you're gonna come, your people are gonna come back. I'm gonna bring you out of this, but for now, this is the right place to go. And so Jacob's able to move forward embracing joy rather than fear about this move to Egypt. It says in verse five, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring, he brought him into Egypt. And we're not going to take the time to read all those names again. Is that quite a difficult undertaking? Um, but we go down to verse 28. It says that he sent Judah ahead of him. We're going to come back to why that's significant that all those names are mentioned, but um, we don't need to read them again to show their significance. 28, he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And there Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to meet Israel, presents himself to him, fell on his neck. They weep together. Israel says to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh, will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. All right, third point and our last point for today, connect the dots to increase your trust. Connect the dots to increase your trust. For our kids, we can find encouragement by seeing God work in the lives of others. We can find encouragement by seeing God work in the lives of others. I want us to connect all the dots in this long, lengthy passage now to see God keeping his promises because that should reassure us in the trust that we have that he will keep promises to us. If we can connect the dots here and see in this lengthy passage over and over and over again, God keeping his promises, it ought to increase our trust, right? It ought to increase our trust that God is gonna keep promises to us as well. And it's significant that we connect this to the New Testament, and it's convenient that we can also connect it to the Christmas season. In Romans chapter 15, verse 8, this is a passage we're going to come back to at some point as we're working through um, the month of December here. But in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant, right? The Christmas story, Christ became man to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, right? Jesus comes, Christmas happens so that God can show that he is a true God, a God who keeps his promises, the promises given way back in the Old Testament. Right, so let's connect the dots a little bit here to see how God is keeping his promises. First of all, God promises offspring. Right? God has been promising offspring. He continues to make promises about offspring. And we're starting to see the fulfillment of that promise. That's why the, the list of names is so important in Genesis chapter 46. Because we get a picture, because we're not talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Right, like we stopped talking about him there because probably not all of us could name all uh, twelve of his sons. 
And then we certainly couldn't name all these offspring that are coming after that, right? Like it's, it's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and then we just kind of stop there because it really starts to explode here, right? There's, there's 70, maybe a little bit more, uh, depending on, on which um, historical record you're looking at but, and, and when you're looking at it, but around 70 people end up in Egypt at this time, okay? That's, that's not a nation, right? That's not a city. That's not really even a town, um, there are some towns that maybe that would classify as a town, but, but not really what we think about even as a town, right? Around 70 people end up in Egypt at this time. And then for 400 plus years, they sit. They sit and they multiply and they grow. And when they leave Egypt, 400 years later, when they leave Egypt, think about the numbers that are being thrown around as to how many of them are there. Remember, it's enough for Pharaoh to look around and say, this is a problem. There's a lot of them, and we need to do something about it. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. It says the Egyptians are, are urgent to get them out because the firstborns have just been taken. Um, it says in verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them. These are people that aren't direct descendants of Abraham, but people that have said, hey, we want to be a part of this. So they've kind of joined up with the children of Israel. So we've got 600,000 Israelite men who are basically considered at a warrior level. The age and the ability, like these guys are, are, are what we consider the men of our people, and there's 600,000 of them. That number gets a little bit bigger two years later, if you look at Numbers chapter 1, we won't time, take the time to look at both these passages. But if you are just counting the warrior men at 600,000, conservative estimates, when you start throwing in the women and the children and then the other people that joined up with them, we're talking about 2.4 plus million people that walk out of Egypt only 400 years later. I mean, that's a massive, that's a massive growth a growth rate that would have not been seen had they stayed in Canaan and had been intermarrying and getting lost and mixed up with the other nations. They go live in Goshen by themselves and nobody touches them and nobody intermarries with them and they grow to a small nation. I, mean, I did a population search this morning on, on different nations and, and there's some countries that we've heard of that fall in the two to three million range, right? Like this is, this is, this is much bigger now than the 70. It's much bigger than a city and a town this is a small nation here. And they're going to continue to grow as they get into the promised land. And they're going to continue to grow as God blesses them. But there's a huge growth in the 400 years that they're in Egypt. God is promised offspring and God is keeping that promise. Number two, God promises a great nation, right? Not just a lot of people, but a people that, that encompasses a nation. The identity of Israel is preserved in Goshen. It says that they show up in Goshen and they get approval from Pharaoh to stay in Goshen, and that's significant. This, this area that they, they don't, don't just discount that, oh, they just picked a place to live. It's significant where they choose to live. Um, it's a place where they're completely separate from the other Egyptians. It's the perfect environment for them to grow. It's the perfect location for them to escape. Goshen is on the promised land side of Egypt. Right? So they're not having to parade through the Egyptian land as they're saying their goodbyes. 
Like they're already halfway out the door living in Goshen. So God brings the plagues. The firstborn son is killed. Egyptians are like, get them out of here. And God's like, hey, great. 400 years ago, we anticipated this and we already have us right on the cusp of leaving. And they, they bolt, right? And then they, they change their mind and they try to chase them down and they're already at the Red Sea and God kills them all at the Red Sea. If you follow that timeline, had they been on the other side, they would have changed their mind before they had gotten out of Egypt and they would have kept them in Egypt right? God doesn't do anything by mistake here. He says, you're going to live in Goshen, which is on the promised land side of Egypt, so that when it's time to go, we can really go and get out of here, right? God, connect the dots here. God's keeping his promises. Not only that, there's this big emphasis in this passage, right, about them being shepherds and about Egyptians not liking shepherds. Catch this. Shepherds aren't allowed to intermarry beyond their family, right? Like, they're, they're just disgusting people in the Egyptians' eyes, So nobody was trying to date Israelites. Nobody was trying to marry Israelites. On top of that, they're not allowed in the temples in Egypt. They don't get to worship like the Egyptians. That's huge because when they go to Canaan, right, like they're struggling with false gods because the Canaanites are like, yeah, come worship with us, right? Remember when when Balaam is trying to curse Israel and he can't curse them because God won't let them and the king says, okay, let's send our women to entice the men to come worship with us and there's this great evil and God punishes the Israelites for it, right? Canaanites were like, hey, come worship with us. Egyptians are like, uh, please don't, right? Like worship your own God. We're not interested in you worshiping like us. You're not allowed in our churches. That's huge for them because they're able to keep their national identity. They're not marrying and they're not worshiping like the Egyptians. So when it tum- comes time to go, you know what they're not dragging along? They're not dragging along little images of Ra and other Egyptian gods, right? They don't really even know those gods. They haven't been worshiping those gods, right? That's huge for God to put them here. It's God keeping his promise. I'm not gonna just give you 2.4 million people. I'm gonna give you 2.4 million people that think the same way, that worship the same way, that live in the same place. God preserves them here. Number three, God promises blessing and protection. Think about it, Egypt is inviting them to come, right? They roll out the red carpet for their arrival. They pay their moving expenses, right? I don't know how many of you have ever had to, to really relocate in a way where it's, it's difficult. It's huge to have your moving expenses covered, right? Because that's a big expense to, to rent trucks and, and to sell houses and to try to find somewhere new to live. And, and Egypt says, you know what? All that's taken care of. In fact, don't pack up everything. We're just gonna buy you new stuff when you get here. Right? That, that's, that's typically something that, when a company really wants somebody, that's what they do. Um, I know a, a buddy of mine who lived in our neighborhood um, worked for Georgia Power. Like they, they would do that to get him to move. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and buy your house. We'll furnish your house. We're, we're gonna take care of all that for you to make this as easy as possible, right? Because if you're like me, um, the the idea of moving even in Sonoy to a bigger house just just discourages me. Like getting boxes and packing and trying to relocate and having to paint again and do all that. It's just like, I don't know, I'm not, I'd, I'd rather add on to our house right now than go buy a new house. Moving cross country like they're doing, Egypt says, you know what? Let's make this as easy as possible, right? God's promises of blessing and protection are being carried out. And then number four, God promises to bless those who take care of Israel, right? That was one of the promises given to Abraham. I'm gonna bless those who bless you, right? What does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh has been unbelievably accommodating. And then what happens? Pharaoh prospers greatly, right? In Joseph's wisdom, and there's this weird section here where it talks about the people run out of money. They still need food. And so Joseph, and they work out a deal where it's like, give me all your livestock. Well, now we're out of livestock. 
Okay, well, give me your land. All right, we're out of land. All right, then give me yourselves, right? And so they're working out this deal and the people are kind of initiating it, right? Like, hey, we need you to save us. We need your provision. Hey, we'll sacrifice everything because we trust you and you're a good, you're a good leader and we're gonna give you everything so that you'll take care of us and provide for us. And, and in the midst of it, Pharaoh's just getting wealthier and wealthier. And I think this is God providing for Pharaoh and keeping his promise that if you bless my people, I'll bless you and I'll take care of you. And that's exactly what we see playing itself out here as well. All right, so if we connect all the dots, we can see God keeping his promises to the patriarchs. And we can see that God continues to keep those promises in the New Testament as Romans 15 attests to. Now, I want us to close with this last implication. The proper response to a king who works for your good is complete surrender. I told you I think that we have this in here because... um, God shows us that he takes care of Pharaoh because Pharaoh has been diligent to take care of his people. But I think this also serves as a great example to us as to what it looks like to properly respond to a good leader. These people are excited and joyful over the arrangement made with Joseph. It says that they're giving everything away to Joseph in order for him to provide food for them. And they're they're okay with it. They're okay with it. It says, uh, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought, bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. Talks about the, um, the tithe that they'll give back to him. It says they're okay with it. The people are fine with it. It says in verse 25, they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will definitely be servants to Pharaoh. What a a great arrangement here. And and, and this is important to note because you know what? It's got to be far different than the arrangement that the next Pharaoh makes with the people of Israel because they become his servants and they hate it, right? So it's a completely different arrangement. When you have a good king in place who is structuring the economy in a good way and taking care of the people in a good way, then the people say, you know what? We love you and we will follow you and we will give you everything. And then when the next Pharaoh or Pharaohs down the road come that don't remember Joseph, it says that he kind of does the same thing and the Israelites hate it because it's oppressive and it's not good. The proper response to a king who works for your good is complete surrender. They give their money, their possessions, their property. They give their whole lives to Joseph and Pharaoh. The Egyptians voluntarily bind themselves to the only one who can properly provide for them. And they see it as a good thing. And that ought to be a huge implication for us because what we're talking about here is a God who makes promises to do only good to us. And the the appropriate response from us as his children ought to be complete surrender, right? Like the Egyptians leave us a great example here that when we, when we submit ourselves to a good ruler who has nothing but good intent for us, then it ought to lead us to say, you know what? My money's yours. My property's yours. My possessions are yours. My life is yours. I, I'm willingly doing this because you know what? You saved me. You saved my life. May it please my Lord. We will certainly be servants to Pharaoh. I mean, that's that's the Christian surrender right there, right? Like we look to a God who we say, you know what? I believe you're good. 
I believe you have only good intent for me. Your favor is upon me as your child. Why would I not surrender everything to you? You're you're the God who saves me. You're the God who takes care of me. I'm definitely gonna willingly bind myself to you and trust you with my future. The application for us, remember that temporary weeping does not negate God's permanent favor. Remember that temporary weeping does not negate God's permanent favor. We went back to that summary sentence. When we believe that God's committed to his people and we trust that his presence is always with us, we can approach big life changes with confidence that good will be the outcome, even if good is not always taking place, right? Like I said, hey, you may make a big life change and you may panic at the outset because maybe it doesn't go exactly how you thought it was supposed to go. But circumstances pointed you that way, desires pointed you that way, the wisdom of others pointed you that way, the results of prayer and and study and and submission to the Holy Spirit led you that way. And it may not always be good because it wasn't always good for Egypt, for for Israel and Egypt, right? They go through a lot of bondage and slavery. But on the other end of it, it's good. It's it's good. It's right. It's, It's good. It's the right move. And I think Psalms reminds us of that in chapter 30, verse four and five. Psalm chapter 30. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We're familiar with that that second part of it, right? Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. But the reason joy comes in the morning is because of the preceding sentence, that his favor is for a lifetime. Right? Like that's the assurance for us as believers this morning is that we have a God who remains, uh, remains favorable towards us for a lifetime and carries us through any temporary weeping, any temporary struggles, any temporary difficulties. We can, we can weather those storms with joy knowing that a favorable God produces good in all of those circumstances for us. We believe that God's committed to us. We trust that he's always with us. Those are the promises that he gives to Jacob before Jacob sets out for Egypt. We can approach big life changes with confidence as well, that good will always be the outcome. Our family worship questions for this week. Number one, when we experience bad times in life, what are some of the important promises we should remember? These are important lessons that our kids need to to learn early and often. When we experience bad times in life, what are some of the important promises we should remember? Number two, why did the Egyptians willingly, sorry, willingly surrender so much to Joseph? What type of things are we supposed to surrender to God? So let's rehash some of the the motivation for the Egyptians to surrender so much to Joseph. And then let's talk about some of the things that we too can surrender to God um, as believers today. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this lengthy passage that we've been able to look at today. Um, God, I'm thankful for the historical record of how you moved your people to Egypt um, and what seems like just a, an itinerary of people moving around and making adjustments and finding new jobs and new places to live. God, we we can look at it today and be thankful um, that there's much for us to glean from it. Um, God, we're thankful that you can guide us in a similar way as you guided Jacob and his family, that you've given us uh, minds and uh, brains to think and to assess circumstances and desires and 
to be able to process the wisdom of others so that when we're faced with big life changes, we can, we can certainly step forward, um, at least in caution, believing that we're going in the right direction. And, and Father, we're thankful for a Holy Spirit who indwells us. We thank you for the word that guides us so that if we are moving in a wrong direction, you can quickly redirect us. And so God, I pray for those in our church that are maybe facing big changes and decisions, um, people that are possibly looking at relocation. Um, God, I pray that you would encourage them and that you would give them the wisdom they need to make the right decisions for their families. Um, God, for those that are maybe looking at new jobs and uh, the possibilities of, of making big changes there, God, I pray that you would guide them, um, that circumstances and desires and the wisdom of others would help uh, give them the information they need to make an educated decision. But God, I pray that we would always move forward with caution, um, willing and ready for you to step in and say, don't go to Egypt. Um, God, help us to remember that, that some things are good for some families and some individuals and some things aren't for others. So God, I pray that we would always proceed with caution, waiting for you to, to redirect us if needed. Um, God, we're thankful that we can proceed into unknown areas of our life confidently without fear. Um, trusting that you're a God who makes promises and keeps his promises. And Father, we're thankful that you always go with us and that you always have good intent for us. Father, I pray that we'd be able to look at the lives of others around us. And I think that's one of the great joys that you give us in being a part of a local church, for us to be able to look and to connect the dots in the lives of other people and see how you're at work. And God, I pray that connecting the dots here in Genesis um, 45, 46, and 47, connecting the dots in the lives of other people in our church, I pray that those uh, those connections would, would increase our trust and faith in you. Um, God, that we would see constantly that you're a good God um, whose favor remains upon us for a lifetime. And God, I pray that in the midst of difficulties, as, as Israel would find themselves not too long later in Egypt, that we would not doubt your goodness and question whether we've made right decisions, that instead we would trust the good outcome that lies on the other side. And God, I pray that we'd be challenged by the Egyptians and their response to a good leader who was making good, cho- good choices and decisions. They completely abandoned themselves and, and surrendered themselves to this good leader. And God, I pray, obviously, on a much larger, grander scale, that we would see you as that good leader for us, that we'd be willing to sacrifice whatever necessary, whatever you call us to sacrifice, entrusting ourselves to a, a good God, a good king who has nothing but good intent for us. God, help us to remember these things. Help us to, to hold fast to these promises. God, I pray that we would not love this world in such a way that it causes us to, to not long for the world to come. Pray that the goodness that you've promised would, would capture our hearts and our minds to live faithfully until Jesus returns. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.